0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Jacqueline Gannon. On today's episode, I'm talking to Camille Whitaker. She's the managing editor of Atlanta Magazine, a training director at Canopy Atlanta, and above all, a storyteller. Today, we're talking about her work and about journalism that truly serves its audience. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. Hi, Camille. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Hi, Jacqueline. Great to be here. Your career started in the Black Press at Black Voice News in your hometown in California. So, can you talk about the purpose of the Black Press and why it's so important?
1: So, what we call the historic Black Press began officially in 1827 by two um, African-American publishers who started the Freedoms Journal. And the tagline at the time was for that publication to be the voice for the voiceless. And what that meant at that time and what that really still means now is that the issues and the concerns and the challenges that were either overlooked in mainstream media or undercovered, or covered in an imbalanced way that the black press gave it space to be printed on its pages. Um, It was black press publications that, you know, went there with certain stories like the the printing of the, the open casket for Emmett Till, the Atlanta child murders. It was black press papers that kind of stayed on that story and made sure that readers saw the connections between what was happening, and made sure that the families and the missing children would not be forgotten. And I'm remembering from uh, my hometown paper, the Black Voice News, they were relentless in terms of their coverage on a murder of A woman named Taisha Miller, she was 19 years old, and she was killed by police. And there were differing accounts that were printed in the mainstream publication. But the Black Voice News, they were relentless in holding the authorities to account. But also, you know, for things like wedding announcements and graduations and, you know, Jet Magazine had a beauty of the week Things like that that are kind of like our cultural underpinnings that don't necessarily get represented elsewhere, the black press served as a vehicle for those stories as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. Like, the, like you said, the community and the cultural underpinnings that you just really need those, that space that wasn't being given. So then in your career, after you interned at Black Voice News, you've had a couple other experiences after that. So can you talk about some of those jobs and kind of what they taught you along your career journey? Yeah, so I
1: had a lot of internships at the undergraduate level. You know, I made sure I interned with a a print publication I was an intern at Arlington County Parks and Recreation Department. I was a media relations intern for, for that department, which exposed me to you know, another aspect of communications. I interned for Heldriff. It was an academic publisher. It actually was a, acquired or absorbed by Taylor & Francis so that taught me all about different styles of writing and editing and proofing and the production process. Um, I interned at Washington Post and Newsweek, and I think what I learned most from my experience with Washington Post is that I had cultivated this like editorial instinct. You know, what is a story? What is something that needs to be followed up on? What is something that we're putting together that probably shouldn't be put together? I remember one time there was a, a school uh, uniform ordinance being passed in a municipality in, in Northern Virginia, and the online enhancements that we were preparing to place with it had to do with teenage crime. And I was like, hmm, you know, something in me just wondered why we would make that, that connection you know, I approached the editor and I, you know, asked after I did, after I opened my mouth and made it known that I I saw a little bit of a discrepancy there. Another editor came down from downstairs and was like, yeah, remove it, you know, and I was like, you know, can you picture my intern heart just beating extra fast because I spoke up, but, you know, my editorial instinct was affirmed. And um, I think that, having that confirmation and that affirmation in that setting is what kind of laid the
0: foundation for how I continued on. Yeah I love that story about you kind of speaking up and taking up space and it's really important when you see you know something that's not right to like have the confidence to say, like, we should really fix that. But that's, like, really hard to do in newsrooms. So now you are the managing editor of Atlanta Magazine. So can you talk about that job and kind of what it entails and what you think is rewarding about it? Everything that I have
1: learned um, and all the editorial instinct that I've cultivated kind of, like, spilled into this job as managing editor. It's really a dream job in that I get to manage the production of the monthly magazine from point A to Z so that is um, making sure that the copy and the text is um, accurate um, and and rigorously fact-checked. I get to work with a wonderful team of editors um, and on the art side as managing editor I get to liaise with the art side of things and so over the two years that I've been there, we've just charged ourselves with making sure that our coverage uh, in in on the pages of Atlanta Magazine reflected the city, you know, and whether that's looking into what's happening in um, immigrant populations um, and refugee populations or looking at, um, you know, different food ways. I can tell you that prior to working at Atlanta Magazine, I was one of those who, I'm at the newsstand, I see a, a cover that catches my eye. And every single time, it was like a five-year run where I was like, okay, I'm going to wait to see. If it if it catches my eye, then I'm going to get it. And if it doesn't, I'm not. But every single issue, Atlanta Magazine had me. And so now being on the other side of that, I, there's not a you know, food review that hasn't inspired me to go check it out that next weekend. We have just been able to cover a range of topics. And I enjoy seeing how many ways we can tell the story of Atlanta.
0: Yeah, I love that you get to be on the other side of that now after seeing it for so long. And so another thing that you do in Atlanta is you co-founded Canopy Atlanta, which is a community nonprofit journalism source, and you're also the training director for that. So can you talk about what Canopy is and the work that y'all do there? Yes. So Canopy
1: is a nonprofit organization, nonprofit newsroom, as well as training program. And what we do there is we go neighborhood by neighborhood and we engage residents and train residents on the, you know, fundamental tenets of journalism so that they can tell the stories of the community themselves. And how that all came to be was that um, a group of about 20 journalists in different stages of their career gathered together to figure out a way to address some of the inequities that were present in journalism, in traditional journalism as we know it. And one was this practice of extractive journalism where journalists with little to no connection to communities are assigned stories. uh, They kind of parachute in, they tell the story, they leave, and there's really no follow-up or um, any effort to bring any kind of continuity or any real concern about the impact of the journalism and the reporting that that happened there. We just decided like what would happen if the community residents told these stories themselves? And so we decided to launch a training program where community residents spend about 10 weeks with me as the, the training director. Um, and I gather together journalists around the city and we conduct workshops like fact-checking and interviewing 101 and ethics and and just reporting one-on-one, and at the end of the, the fellowship, they're able to present that story back to their community, and these are community members who, you know, are going to see their neighbors at the end of the day at the nearby grocery store. They're going to be riding their bike and, you know, um, being held accountable for their words by the neighbors that they live right next door to.
0: Yeah, I love that like embedded community aspect. And I think that what you said about parachute journalism, I've definitely been thinking a lot more about that as someone who's about to graduate and doesn't want to, you know, drop in and then leave after, you know, give me a a soundbite. So one of your projects that I found really, really interesting is called Perhaps to Bloom, which is a storytelling project about the growing cultural impact of the Caribbean population Mm -hmm. in Atlanta and in the South as a whole. So what inspired that project and what do you hope that impact is going to be? Sure. Well, my family
1: is Jamaican um, on both sides. So uh, that makes me Jamaican. <laughs> and I I grew up culturally Jamaican. My mom made sure that she, you know, gave us all of the rituals and traditions and food ways. And one question that I've always had was, you know, how do you make an area, you know, wh- wherever you decide to live, how do you make it home? I consider Jamaica to be one of my homes. Um, I used to spend a lot of time there growing up, and I try to go back multiple times a year. There was a secondary migration where, uh, you know, islanders, people from the Caribbean, decided that they wanted to be, you know, a little bit closer to, to quote-unquote home. And so I'm looking into that that secondary migration. Um, Atlanta happened to be the destination that welcomed multitudes of Caribbean descended people from whether it was Jamaica or Haiti or Trinidad, all over the Caribbean. And you know you start to notice the changes in a lot of things, even if it's as small as the increased um, food offerings at the public's. In Atlanta specifically, they had something called the Atlanta Caribbean Carnival, which was launched in 1988 alongside the National Black Arts Festival. And so it's just something that I wanted to to mark and note. And as a matter of fact, um, in the May issue of Atlanta Magazine, we'll be looking at the Caribbean presence of um, in in Atlanta. So we'll be looking at everything um, from the politics to the foodways um, to the entertainment. And so that is definitely something I consider to be part of that, perhaps, to bloom. Um, project. And that actual title, perhaps to bloom, comes from um, a poem that Richard Wright wrote. And it basically, the gist of it was saying, you know, if I were to feel kind of like the warmth of, of other suns in in an area that wasn't considered to be my home, like maybe I could bloom there, right? And so I, I took the title for that project, Perhaps to Bloom, to indicate that at some point, you know, you people have to figure out a way to make their place in the larger African diaspora home. And um, it's just fascinating to see how that's done.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really, really great project. I love the uncovering, like you said, and just marking in history to make sure that people know about it because that's really important. So another thing that you do is that you teach at Mercer University, and you're the Cox Institute's Industry Fellow this year. So what draws you to teach and interact with students? I would say that the best part of any
1: job Any position I've ever held has always been being like the internship supervisor um, where I'm actively training up the next generation of journalists. And so before I even got a teaching position, I was like, you know, some way, somehow, I'm going to be functioning in that capacity Um, because in the same way that I was drawn to being an editor, where I can really um, help writers craft their stories, um, craft and hone their journalism and journalistic instincts. It's the same reason that I'm drawn to teaching. Um, At Mercer, I instruct in the online writing lab, and that's cross-disciplinary, so it's not just journalism. It's students writing their sociology papers, their psychology papers, their nursing papers. And you really start to see that it doesn't matter what you're trying to communicate, you, there are skills and certain you know, basic skills that you need to learn. And so I'm not out here evangelizing for journalism, but I am for you know great storytelling and, and great writing. And so um, as industry fellow, I hope to do that as well just being able to work with students that I know already have that, you know, drive and that that impulse to tell great stories and to communicate. I think every student or everyone that has the opportunity to be coached by someone, um, to have their existing skill sets honored and, you know, life kind of breathed into what they're already, you know, thinking about and, and putting on the page. I think that, you know, there's not enough opportunities for that. And I just, you know, gravitate towards anything that allows me to be to have that dynamic with students.
0: It all comes back to storytelling. And I think that also goes back to what we talked about with all of your different experiences. Like you said, they were a little bit not just straight journalism, but it just all comes back to telling a story. I think that's great. And so finally, here's an opportunity to give advice to students. Uh, What advice do you have for aspiring journalists or, I guess, aspiring storytellers? I would
1: say the first thing that comes to mind is to be curious. There's a book called The Book of Delights, and the writer just for a year decided to just observe the world around him and highlight the things that brought him joy or delight. And what it caused him to do is to be attentive, to be more attentive to the world around him. I think uh, any journalist can hone their skills, whether they're on assignment or not, to just look around you and ask why things are the way they are. And that will get you multiple steps down the road if you start there with curiosity. I also think that it's important to be someone of integrity a big part of journalism, and especially in my role as managing editors, is integrity of the words and of the facts. If you come to the table having that sense of, um, you know, integrity about how you're reporting and that you are not trying to do harm and that you have a fidelity to the truth, then that will also get you, you know, pretty far And then the third thing I would say would be to connect yourself to a writing tradition or storytelling tradition or storytelling genealogy. You know, I mentioned how I came about, you know, even looking at Black Voice News because of how they handled a story that was important to, you know, my community. So I have these figures that I kind of pattern myself after in terms of How I want my work to exist in the world, and that was, you know, that was taught to me, and that's something that I want to pass down because it really kind of guides you um, and guides your 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 steps.
0: Thank you so much, Camille. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you again to Camille for joining me on this episode, and thank you for tuning into the Lead. I'm your host, Jacqueline Ganat. Our executive producer is Charlotte Norsworthy, and this show is supported by the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.